Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. But what is the show? 112BK is a new daily news and culture show. The only one about and from Brooklyn, America's fourth largest city. We're here to talk about the matters that matter to you. I'm Ashley Ford, and I'm excited to do this with you today. Halloween is almost here. It's my favorite holiday, but let's not jump the goblin. First, we have Jabari Brisport, Green Party candidate and socialist vying to unseat the incumbent in this very district, the 35th. We have a guest who's going to talk about taking on the fossil fuel industry. And finally, a Sandy-inspired installation. And on that note, here are a few items you might want to know. On Wednesday, the NAACP announced another unusual travel advisory. A couple months ago, they urged caution when traveling to Missouri, if you're a person of color. Now, the nation's oldest civil rights organization is cautioning air travelers, particularly if you're black, about flying on American airlines. Is that our country's flagship carrier? Wow. This came after several reports of black passengers feeling they were discriminated against. I actually didn't see the advisory until about 10 minutes after I booked my next flight on American Airlines. Next, the Gowanus Canal. Can it be true? You're finally going to get what's coming. After years of planning, the EPA announced on Tuesday that the cleanup of the Superfund site will begin. Equipment is in place to dredge the toxic sludge known as black mayonnaise that sits at the bottom of the canal. The announcement was intended to warn nearby residents and businesses that, among other things, you're gonna smell a lot of smells. And hey, how does an invitation to the basement of an active Brooklyn police precinct appeal to you? Sounds like a euphemism to me. But the 7-8 in Prospect Heights is inviting neighbors to its annual Halloween haunted house. Kids of all ages are invited from now until October 30th. Scary. Less scary and more warming is that on Wednesday, Brooklyn students celebrated the 75th anniversary of the 1943 iconic novel A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. By my math, that makes it a year early, but who am I to quibble? Even better was that Smith's 94-year-old daughter, Nancy, attended the celebration and read a few passages from the book. As a Brooklynite and a book lover, I feel like it's pretty messed up that I haven't read this one yet, but I'm adding it to my list this year to celebrate Betty and Brooklyn, or next year. We'll see. And finally, advocates for police reform are demanding that the city council force a vote on two hotly contested bills. They both have to do with police providing information to the people they stop on the street, informing them when they have the right to refuse a search and also the reason for the stop. And that's a good segue to our next guest, a city council candidate, Jabari Brisport, who's been vocal on the Right to Know Act, coming up next. Over the next several days, with the general elections right around the corner on November 7th, we're going to have conversations with a number of city council candidates. Did you know that four years ago, turnout in the city was below 15% of all eligible voters? Yeah, I didn't know that, Ross. That's a really crazy statistic to me. Um, next week, we'll talk more about voter turnout and civic engagement. But right now, we've got Jabari Brisport, Green Party candidate for Brooklyn's 35th district. This district's city council seat. Jabari, welcome to 112BK. Thanks for having me, Ashley. So first of all, can you just tell me a little bit what inspired you to get into politics initially? 
I've always been into politics, more so on the activist side, and you know, I come from a theatrical background, so using theater as a means for social change. And I did all the good citizen stuff of you know, staging the rallies and reaching out to my elected officials and getting the petitions drafted and getting them signed and everything, you know, fighting up zonings, and ultimately finding it wasn't enough, um, so I decided to try my hand at politics from a more traditional route and run for office. And why the Green Party? I love their platform. I really mm -hmm. like they're the only party calling for reparations. They're the only party calling to get America off fossil fuels by 2030. It's the only party trying to shrink the, uh, the military industrial complex by half. And um, I believe in a multi-party system. Now, when Obama was running for president, mm -hmm. um, especially in his first term, for the first term, um, I was really involved in that from yeah. where I was, you know, where I lived at the time. And one of the things, the words that I remember being thrown at him as a criticism over and over and over was socialist. But you are openly <laughs> yeah. socialist. I am a socialist. So talk to me a little bit about um, maybe how that term has changed in the past eight or nine years and, you know, why you decided that that's your party, that that's like how you feel? I think it's changed just because Bernie Sanders made the word cool again. I mm. mean, he ran as a democratic socialist mm -hmm. for president and made people actually start looking into it, realizing that it's not about bread lines in Russia and like people getting tossed off into Siberia. Right. It's more so about democratic ownership of your workplace. It's about having a say in your community. And it's about having a world and an economy that are centered around what people need, not just profits. Mm -hmm. What are some of the most important issues to you right now? Like, why are you running for city councilman right now? Housing is the crisis point of our city right mm -hmm. now. People are getting pushed out of their homes left and right, and it's not happening by accident. It's not happening because the market is out of control. It's in control, and it's being directed by special interest and a housing lobby and real estate developers and landlords that are getting richer by the day while people go homeless. Aside from that, we have a police force that's a standing army, and we need mm -hmm. to bring the NYPD under community control if we want to end police violence. We have a climate that is in crisis, and we need to divest our city from fossil fuels. There are a lot of things that need to be addressed. Can you really quickly, because mm -hmm. one of the things that you just said there that really hit me was about um, the NYPD. Mm -hmm. And you've been really supportive of what we talked about earlier, the Right to Know Act. Mm -hmm. Why is that so important to you right now that people are able to ask police, which to be perfectly honest, I didn't realize was a problem, that people weren't allowed or they weren't, they didn't have the right when stopped by the police to say, you have to tell me why you're stopping me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it ties into the fact that we have an extreme like power differential between mm -hmm. police and their communities. And so, for example, even going to the Civilian Complaint Review Board, um, how can you complain about a police officer if you don't know who harassed you? I mean, I didn't, you know, in, in some cases of sexual abuse too, like you, you, we need the ability to know who's stopping us and why. It ties into broken windows policing. I mean, how many times are young black and brown boys getting profiled for things that, you know, young white boys um, are doing and not getting profiled for? And, you know, we need the ability to ask why we're being stopped and, and who is doing it just for follow-up right. and also to avoid profiling. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And you grew up in this district, yeah. right? Grew up in Prospect you, Heights, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your life here and have, have you dealt with some of the, the things that you're fighting for? Have you personally dealt with, like, the fallout from those. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, like, you know, I'm lucky that my family, uh, we own our property, so, uh, mm -hmm. and we've owned it since the 50s, and, you know, real estate agents keep trying to get us to sell it. Mm -hmm. But seeing um, small businesses getting pushed out, you know, mm -hmm. through the price of gentrification. So, like, there was this Haitian man that used to own a corner store or a bodega that used to quiz me on math. Like, before I had to, I, I would buy candy, and before I could get my change back, I would have to tell him how much I was getting back. And 
he got pushed out and went back to Haiti because the rent was too high and uh, mm -hmm. seeing tons of like childhood stories getting getting pushed out. And then dealing with the police, I remember when I was in college and me and my friend got stopped. My friend fit the profile of somebody they were looking for and mm -hmm. the officer started like handcuffing him to a scaffolding until, you know, we could figure something else out. And I, I was shouting because the officer was, you know, he was, he was, he was plain clothes officer. He wasn't in uniform. And I was asking him, you know, to show his badge, state himself at least. Mm -hmm. I was shouting and shouting and like, I guess I got too close because he put a gun in my face. Oh, my um, Before uh, locking, you know, not being locked my friend up, he found out that he cared from his other buddies that they found the actual guy. But like, that's absurd. <laughs> you should know who's arresting you, mm -hmm. who's putting handcuffs on you. And how is that affecting the community on a day-to-day -day knowing that cops can come, you know, up to you and they can detain you and they can put a gun in your face and it can all be a case of mistaken identity, but as a as a person mm -hmm. walking around like how do you how do you live? Like how do you mm -hmm. deal with the idea that that could happen at any time? It, it hurts because ultimately it actually um, it hurts attempts to fight crime, which mm -hmm. we want on all sides. We want that, you know, the police want that, but also communities want that. But unfortunately, mm -hmm. if we can't trust the police, then we won't talk to them. And I've spoken with people living in Naisha housing around the women houses saying, you know, there was a time when they knew the police officers, they were able to talk with them, but now they're just these random people that parachute in. I mean, you know, the majority of white officers on the NYPD don't live in New York City, they live outside of the city. So they, they parachute in, they're there to just enforce laws. They don't know the people, and ultimately, you know, we can't get a connection between communities and, and, our, and our police. How can you change that on the city council? We need to bring community control, so there are a few ways we can do it. We can mm -hmm. fight for something called, and uh, we can take the, C the CCRB. It's a yeah. Civilian Complaint Review Board. We make it an elected body instead mm -hmm. of appointed, so people actually know who is on the board that they're complaining to, and they can they have accountability to local communities. Another thing you can do is called participatory budgeting, which allows local residents to vote on how things are budgeted, and you bring that to the NYPD, and maybe you can go into your precinct and vote on, maybe they're spending less money on, on body armor and more on body cameras or more social workers on the force. And you can also just require uh, police officers to live in New York City. I think that's a, right. a, a standard request. Alongside yeah. with Right to Know Act, which is common sense legislation that should have been enacted a while ago. Right. Now, police unions mm -hmm. are generally against um, what you just described here. Mm -hmm. So how do you go up against police unions in New York to like make sure something like this can happen for citizens? Well, you get elected, which is helpful. because Right. <laughs> <laughs> first step, first things elected. first. Yeah, yeah, and then you partner. I mean, the, the, the thing about um, even once you're elected, it's, you know, you're just one person on the city council. So it's about not even just having a purely inside approach, but having like an inside-outside approach. So mm -hmm. like I'll be talking to I would be talking to other council members about co-sponsoring legislation, but I'm also partnering with activist groups on the ground, Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. um, Citizens for Police Reform, all them to actually be doing the outside work. Maybe right. they're also working on their council people. They're staging rallies, they're entering their office, they're doing the phone calls, and together we get enough votes to secure this legislation that moves us towards something where the communities have control. And will it work, do you think, the same way for housing, that that inside and outside organization mm -hmm. will be able to help you see through some of of the objectives you have when mm -hmm. you're battling these developers because it's, I mean, it's gonna be a real battle mm -hmm. here in the city. That's the only way it can work. Mm -hmm. And it requires also just organizing and waking up a lot of people because the thing about with the housing, a lot of people think it's just their battle. They think it's just right. them struggling with their landlord. They, they go to housing court, they're scared. Housing court is terrifying, it's loud, mm -hmm. it's confusing, and God help you if English is not your first language. Wow. Um, 
So it's about letting people know that there actually is a concerted war against tenants happening in New York mm -hmm. City right now and banding together. We need tenants unions in buildings. We need tenants unions across buildings and ultimately a citywide tenants mm -hmm. union to be fighting alongside people and with, with elected officials that actually represent people. Mm -hmm. And together we can turn the tide on, on wealthy developers and landlords that only have an interest in making more money. They don't have an interest in building truly affordable housing. Can you explain to me really quickly how I saw that one of the things um, you wanted to do uh, in these spaces is create a trust specifically, mm -hmm. like a community trust. Yeah. How would that work? Yeah, a community land trust. And I would love to um, start with the Bedford Union Armory deal where mm -hmm. the city is trying to give away a public uh, piece of land to a for-profit developer. Mm -hmm. And how it essentially works with the quick and dirty is that local members of the community would organize into a nonprofit and the city would cede over the public land to them to steward. And then once they're organized in a nonprofit, they can work with not-for-profit developers, mm -hmm. they can work with housing experts, architects, and you know, uh, ideally unionized labor to build and construct housing and amenities that work for what the community needs. And they do it without a profit motive. They do it for what they want. Wow. Well, unfortunately, Jabbar, we have to wrap it up. Okay. We've run out of time. I still have so many questions, but mm -hmm. this has been a fascinating conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank Ashley. you so much for being here. In a moment, what's become of the EPA? Are environmental and protection still the right words to use? Next up, a local effort to push back and put the agency back on track. The Trump administration has been on a roll lately, rolling over environmental regulation. The EPA has become almost officially pro-industry, not its watchdog. The president withdrew us from the Paris Climate Treaty, a pact to lower carbon emissions worldwide. And recently, references to climate change on federal agency websites have been scrubbed. Our next guest, Batamia Cornell, along with and her organization, 350, are trying to push back in the face of what seems to be strong headwinds. We invited her here on the eve of the fifth anniversary of Sandy to tell us the state of the struggle. Batamia, mm -hmm. Batamia, thanks for coming yeah, on 112 my pleasure. So first of all, can you just tell me really quickly, what does 350 in the name of the organization mean? Sure, so 350 is a pretty scientific name. Mm -hmm. um, where our no the number represents the uh, parts per million, uh, that's really the tipping point that our atmosphere can hold, mm -hmm. uh, that stays, uh, has us within the safe limit. So right. anything above 350, and right now we're well above 400 parts per million of carbon in the air, um, is dangerous mm -hmm. to all life on planet, to our ecosystems, to the world. Um, and that's what we, we are fighting. We're building a grassroots global movement mm -hmm. to see what we can do on all avenues to push that number back to below 350. Right. And is that why your organization is specifically involved in the Sandy Five event happening this weekend? Sure, it's definitely a piece of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so five years ago, I mean, I'm a lifetime New Yorker. I've lived mm -hmm. here my whole life, lived through the storm. It was really the first time that I saw uh, the realities of climate change coming to our own backyard. Um, and uh, part, a part of what this march is about is both remembering what happened and uh, calling to attention that what happened in Sandy is happening now. I mean, right. we, only in the last few weeks we've seen some of the biggest storms we've ever seen, mm -hmm. wildfires on the West Coast. And um, it's about what are we doing on, on all levels of government to really push for the solutions that we need mm -hmm. and have our government officials 
um, take bold action on climate. And so this weekend is about that. What does bold action look like? Like, how do we prevent this from happening again? How do we, like, prevent some of these bigger, you know, natural disasters from hitting us so consistently? Yeah. I think, you know, experts have been warning us for a long time that this is the road that we are on, mm -hmm. that storms would get stronger, uh, more of them would occur with more frequency, wildfires would be a threat. So none of this right. is necessarily a surprise. Right. It's more of like, we knew this was coming, and now it's about, we have no more time to waste. Right. And uh, that's a piece of some of the demands we're asking, not just for this weekend, but going forward. Bold action looks like, um, moving quickly on a road trajectory to 100% renewable energy, stopping all new fossil fuel infrastructures. We know that currently we cannot afford to not only burn more fossil fuels into mm -hmm. the atmosphere, but we can't even dig any of that out anymore if we are going to stay below our, keep our planet within a safe limit. Mm -hmm. And um, those are two of the main things that we're calling for, I think, right. in, uh, over, in a bigger, under a bigger umbrella. Right, and some people would say that's a really tall order yeah. to be able to do that. What, I mean, what does that look like for people you know, on the day to day? What, is, what does life have to look like? How does it have to change in order for us to meet that goal? I think it's really about um, people being called into action to hold our representatives accountable. You know, mm -hmm. ultimately it comes down to, like you said in your introduction, Trump and his administration are taking us backwards. Right. And so we need to rely on local power. And that means being actively engaged with government officials at every level. Right. So what are our, you know, city councilors, what are our mayors, our governors, our senators, what are they doing and really becoming activated in that way so that right. we can begin to uh, put back some of the things that have been taken away, right. but more importantly, taking more steps because the window to act is really closing mm -hmm. and we have no more time to waste. And our, the people who represent us should know that. And it's urgent, you know, and th this is not the first we've heard about it. People have been talking about this for so long. What's the obstacle? Like, what is keeping us from reaching these goals? What's keeping us from reaching these politicians who are, you know, passing or not passing the legislation that would actually help us combat climate change? I think a piece of it is political will. And mm -hmm. I think that that, in some sense, has uh, shifted us a bit since the Trump administration. You know, Obama was very considered much a progressive person, mm -hmm. a progressive um, administration. But now we're seeing that what the good guys are doing now, even that falls short to what we need. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, um, the mayor, the governor, the senator, they're all champion, uh, championing, championing uh, really awesome efforts, but we are here to say, like, we need more of that. Right. Uh, we need to take an extra step. Um, if you're saying 100% renewable, how fast can you do that? And how are you doing it in an equitable way? Mm -hmm. But politicians and this industry are so intertwined. Is it possible that a lot of these politicians are in the pocket of the fossil fuel industry? I think for sure, uh, yeah. a certain number of them. I mean, if you're looking at uh, donors who have been giving campaign contributions mm -hmm. that are from the fossil fuel industries to those who are now uh, taking back the regulations that have protected our air and protected our water, for sure there's a connection. And I think that that's the kind of stuff that need, we need to continuously expose. Are you serving the interests of the people mm -hmm. uh, or are you serving the interests of corporations designed right. by their biz, by their very business models right. to destroy our planet and to destroy our co communities, 
poison our air and poison mm -hmm. our water. And when we start talking about the people, um, one of the things I didn't know was how much here in New York um, pension programs for public, uh, for public workers are currently invested in fossil fuels. Yeah. And you know, your title is the US Reinvestment Coordinator. So can you talk to people a little bit, explain like what is divestment? Yeah. And what, you know, and how do we, you know, make sure that we're not tied up in this industry that, you know, as you say, like, I mean, we could be making more and we could also be doing better for the planet. Totally. So yeah, I mean, this is a campaign that I've been supporting personally over the last year, uh, the Divest New York campaign. However, that campaign was launched locally uh, by local leaders in 2012, actually on the day that like Hurricane mm. Sandy hit. And the campaign is really about calling it to attention that we're talking about public service employees, teachers, mm -hmm. firefighters, police officers, sanitation workers, you name it, people who work for the public good, uh, are, are working their entire lives to build up a retirement fund. Mm -hmm. And they don't know that the same money that they're putting away is being invested in the companies that are causing the destructions in our backyards, mm. right? That it's very clear that fossil fuel companies have not only contributed to uh, excessive carbon dioxide in our air, but that they've hid climate science for over 40 years. Right. Uh, they bury that very deep in their, in their vaults and are now being investigated by even our own attorney general. Right. So public service employees have about $3 billion invested in the likes of Exxon, pipeline companies, um, oil and gas, you name it. Things that are mm -hmm. perpetually, not only financially becoming unstable, but also destabilizing our communities, our homes. Right. I mean, just the, yesterday I saw that we should be expecting sandy level floods in New York every five years. And guess who pays that? We pay for it. Public right. service employees also pay for it. Right. Um, so it's uh, the cost is doubly for everyone. Right. Well, Tamia, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciated it. This is the kind of information that we need all the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. Next, why Red Hook is the site of an art installation where the muse is a megastorm called Sandy. Hurricane Sandy has inspired a lot of things lately. Of course, a lot of news coverage, but also anger, activism, awareness, and art. We have with us next Anita Glesta, who is a Brooklyn-based artist and curator of a Red Hook installation commemorating Sandy and designed to raise public awareness about environmental justice. Thank you so much for being with us, Anita. Thank you. So first of all, can you tell me a little bit, what does watershed mean and how does it relate to Sandy? So I've chosen the title watershed of mm -hmm. this project uh, for both literal and figurative reasons. Mm -hmm. um, metaphorically, watershed is actually an interesting word because it means a, a time of, I believe, division and, and beginnings, actually. Mm -hmm. And also, a watershed is where lots of bodies of water and land converge downhill to make one body of water, mm -hmm. which actually our Hudson River estuary, I believe, is mm -hmm. pretty much. And while this work has been in a few places in the world right now, I think that watershed actually conveys a meaning everywhere for this. So that's, that's the I like meaning that. of the work. I like that a lot. Um, 
I was also, um, we were just talking even before we got to taping about the fact that um, you live right across the street uh, from where the Twin Towers fell on 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, and that was sort of the catalyst for you moving back into Brooklyn and into Red Hook specifically. Can you talk a little bit about um, how that particular experience also inspired this work? Uh, well, sure. Um, I experienced with my family a, a lot of transience after after we moved from the place uh, our apartment was destroyed. We lost our dog. In short, um, I really felt lucky to have survived with a family, but I um, also began a project that went on for many years, a, a quite a different project than this one, mm -hmm. a work where I interviewed the survivors of the bombing of Guernica. And for many years I went to the village of Guernica to hear their stories. Um, and that project actually was several years in the making and was all over the world. We moved to Brooklyn a few years after 9-11, mm -hmm. not to Red Hook, but of course being a native Brooklynite, mm -hmm. I knew Red Hook. and. After Sandy, I was quite aware of the kind of horrible um, disaster mm -hmm. that the residents experienced there. And so in the last few years, I've been aware that, it, in fact, they've had a lot of problems mm -hmm. with what kind of resilient infrastructures could be, should be, would be employed in that area. And mm -hmm. that's largely why I decided that this work should be there, but also, I guess, not even consciously, I had a great empathy for the kind of post-traumatic stress that people still feel, not only five years, but often decades after a Absolutely. disaster. Absolutely. Um, we're actually going to show a little bit of the art here. Can you set it up for us a little bit? Okay, so it's fish. Yes. And what I'm doing, what's opening tonight, and will be again Saturday night in front of the Red Hook Library on, I believe, Walcott Street in Red Hook, mm -hmm. I'm projecting fish onto the 60-foot sidewalk. So people will have the experience of walking on water surrounded by fish. And um, that is very deliberate to have a kind of visceral experience of what it could be like, and perhaps even what it was like to have the streets flooded with water. So what you will see probably will be fish. All right, let's take a look. Probably one thing that people don't understand as well is that high tide flooding that we see intermittently, you know, from time to time, is actually representing something like what we would expect with one foot of sea level rise um, that is projected for 20 to 30 years. That piece was incredibly soothing and also incredibly eye-opening. I can't wait for everybody to have the experience of seeing that. I hope people show up Saturday night specifically. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here, Anita. We've really, really enjoyed it. And congratulations on this amazing installation. Thank you. We've really enjoyed having you. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Next time, we'll be back with City Council member Matthew Eugene running for re-election. More about the Gowanus Canal, because we love the Gowanus, and its rehabilitation. And next week's really big event, Halloween. See you then. Have a great weekend. Oh, and if anyone you know missed the broadcast, please have them tune into the podcast on SoundCloud.
112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Ford, and is produced by Ross Tuttle, Fred Brown, Shireen Bargy, Emily Bogosian, and Kritzi Roberts. Our show is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer, and is recorded by our studio technical director, Eric Halasek. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. And our theme music is courtesy of Bradley Parker. If you want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us using the hashtag 112BK, email us at 112BKpodcast at gmail.com, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. And make sure to subscribe at soundcloud.com slash 112BK. 112BK is part of the Brick Radio family. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.